Now we come to chapter 3. It says, Now these are the records of Aaron and Moses when Yahweh spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab, the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, anointed priests, whom he consecrated to minister as priests. So Aaron has four sons. These are the only sons who have the right to be priests, the right to sacrifice. All the Levites are priests in the sense of a pastor or a minister kind of a sense, but only Aaron and his four sons get to actually go into the tabernacle and make sacrifices to God. Only that family does. Nadab and Abihu died before Yahweh when they offered strange fire before Yahweh in the wilderness. That was chapter 10 of Leviticus. So two of his sons went into the tabernacle and said, just like Adam and Eve, I don't care if you said that getting wisdom from the tree is wrong. I've decided that you're wrong and I'm right that I'm going to get wisdom from the tree. So Nadab and Abihu said, I don't care if you said this is the way we're supposed to light your fire, God. We're going to light it the way we want to. And God condemned them. Because how dare the people who are supposed to be the holiest, the closest to the image of God, responsible for communicating righteousness and atoning for sin, if they are doing whatever they think is right, then God cannot tolerate that. So he judges them harshly and he kills them. So it's reminding you of this. Why is it reminding you of this? One, on a practical reason, it's reminding you why there's no more four sons now. And on another reason, theological purpose, it's reminding you that obedience to God is important. If you want to be in the presence of God, you have to obey. And that's the whole book of Numbers is emphasizing the need to trust. So Eleazar and Ithamar are the only two sons of Aaron left. And Eleazar is going to become the priest after Aaron dies, the high priest. So verse 5, Yahweh spoke to Moses, Bring the tribe of Levi near and present them before Aaron and the priests, that they may serve him. They are responsible for the needs and the needs of the whole community before the tent of meeting, by attending to the service of the tabernacle, and they are responsible for all the furnishings of the tent of meeting. Remember, the tent of meeting is the tabernacle. And for the needs of the Israelites as they serve in the tabernacle, you are to assign the Levites to Aaron and his sons, and they will, assign exclusive, they will be assigned exclusively to him out of all the Israelites. So you are to appoint Aaron and his sons, and they will be responsible for the priesthood. But the unauthorized person who comes near must be put to death. So God makes it very clear Aaron and his family are the only people who are allowed to function as priests and the sacrifices and in maintaining the inside, the oil. The, for the light, the bread for the table, show bread, all that kind of stuff. And all the other Levites are to serve Aaron's family to make that all possible. Okay, so it's like you got your people on stage who are the actors and all your backhands um, people are all to help that make, make it happen. Everybody's important though. But then he reminds them, this is about atonement for sins. However, they're also responsible for killing anybody who enters the tabernacle without a sacrifice. Now remember, the only way you can get to the tabernacle is through the eastern gate. And the only way you can get through the gate is with a sacrifice. Because you're a sinner who does not have the right to be in the presence of a holy God, therefore you have to cleanse yourself. So anybody who says, I don't care what you think, God, I'm going to come into your presence without repentance and without atonement, because I want to be there. That kind of heart 
is not an obedient heart. That'd be like your kid just shaking her fist at you and saying, screw you, I don't care what you say, you can, I'm going to do whatever I want in this house. You're not a parent, you're not the authority, this is my house. That would be more than just, rebe- that's more than just disobedience or crankiness or just sinful nature. That is outright, I hate you. I am more important than you and I'm going to do whatever you want. And anybody who dares to go into God's presence like that then really reveals their heart for truly being wicked and evil. Okay, even just saying that, like, just like makes a cringe. Like, there's a fear from God. So anybody who thinks I can just go right into heaven, so to speak, right to the throne of God, without a submissive heart, they are to be killed. So even though the Levites are not allowed to fight in the military war against the Canaanites, are they still warriors? Yes. They are warriors for the righteousness and the holiness of God. And it's not that God needs protecting, but the holiness of God needs protecting. Now, let me make that very clear because you're like, that doesn't sound right either. Remember that God can only be where there's no sin. Because not that God is like, I can't be there because there's sin and I'm scared of it. But because of the minute that God steps into the presence of sin, he just immediately eradicates all sin. Or he says, you violate the space and I got to kick you out of my space. And that's what we see with the garden. Sometimes God steps in and everything that is sinful gets eradicated because it's righteous. Other times we see God's righteousness and somebody violates the space and he kicks them out like the Garden of Eden. Either way, God and sin cannot coexist. And so by this, he's saying, this is the holy space. And the only way that I can dwell with you is if that stays righteous and holy. And the minute that space gets defiled, then you have to leave or I have to leave. And so the, the Levites are protecting this space. And they're making sure that it functions in the way that God wants so that one person's sin doesn't violate the holiness of the space and they lose their relationship with God. That is just the same thing as making sure that your house is in good order. You you want to deal... See, if you don't deal with conflict and conflict begins to build and build and build and build and you just kind of sweep it under the rug or you withdraw or whatever, what's going to eventually happen? The house is going to feel dirty. It's going to feel unsafe. You're not going to want to really go home. I mean, I've got kids like this. They don't want to go home because going home means dysfunctionality. It means not safe. It means hurt. There's a lot of pain there. And so they can't have a relationship with the people in their family because that family is not maintaining the, the cleansiness, the clean, cleanliness, oh, I can't say it now, cleanliness of that space. And as comfortable, uncomfortable as this, the more you deal with the conflict, the more you try to resolve it, no matter how many times it keeps coming back up, the safer that house is going to feel, the better it's going to feel, and, the, and you're going to have a good relationship. And that space is going to feel sacred to you. And it's going to feel safe and comfortable. And so that's what God is saying. Look, if you want to have a relationship with God, you have to make sure that all sin is dealt with. Just like we can't have a relationship with each other if there's unrepentant and unconfessed and unforgiven sin. And so God is no different. In fact, the whole reason 
that we have a hard time having a relationship with somebody who's wronged us and there's no repentance or forgiveness is because we're made in the image of God. <laughs> and we're acting like God in that sense. In the same way that you don't want people who don't care about you and they hurt you and they don't repent and they don't seek forgiveness, you don't want to be with them, God can't do that either on a much grander level. And so God says, you Levites, you have to protect this space. Don't let one bad child, so to speak, ruin this so much that all the other children don't get to experience the presence of God. And so that's the job of the Levites. So they, the 12 tribes, are to go out and protect the entire garden And the Levites are supposed to look inward and protect the tabernacle. Because if the tabernacle is not holy, then God can't dwell with them, and God is not going to be with them to make everything else holy. Does that make sense? And that's exactly how it goes in our lives. You've been called to be a priest and the people. And you are the tabernacle. And you've been commanded to guard this tabernacle, to not let anything unwholesome come into your eyes and into your body to pay attention to what comes in. And you're called to exterminate and kill anything that would threaten the garden and the sanctity of your holiness. Because you know when this starts getting defiled and unrepentant sin starts building up, then you start becoming useless in God's hands being a minister to somebody else. And so if you want to be successful in your relationships with other people, if you want to be successful in your job, if you want to serve God, you have to guard this. And so guarding the inward sanctity comes first before you can go out into the land and conquer. And that's what God is trying to communicate, that the most important thing is making sure that you and your dwelling with God is right and that everything else comes secondary. And that's what he really wants them to understand. If you don't protect the Levites and if you don't honor the Levites and you don't let them function the way they're supposed to, then your whole entire nation will become just like all the other nations. Dysfunctional, defile, vile nations that are going to be wiped out. And that's what we're getting in the book of Deuteronomy too, is don't be like them, or I will do the same thing to you that I did to them. Does that make sense? And that's what you need to think. Well, this is where we can see Christ. Because Christ comes along and literally says, I am the temple, the tabernacle. And then he comes along and says, you are the tabernacle. Remain in me and I'll remain in you. And then I will give you my spirit who will give you the power to go out and be my witness. And so Christ makes it very clear in the same way that he structured this. Christ comes along and says, you are the tabernacle and I'm dwelling in you. When you and then he says, John, the only time Jesus ever calls you your friend is in John chapter 14. He says, If you are my if you obey me, then you're my friend. So he says, You have to obey me, you have to remain in me, and I will remain in you, and you have to deal with your sin with me. And only when you accept my sacrifice, then will you have the power come upon you to go out and witness. And Christ is, in a way, alluding back to this. The function. You cannot be my military spiritual warfare person unless you've dealt with all this here. Now, once again, don't get it wrong. It doesn't mean that you have to be perfect in here first before you can serve God. That's not what he's saying. But you have to be in the process of cleansing and sanctifying in order to go out and serve God. And God deals with them both. They happen simultaneously. 
Does that make sense? Any questions? I think that's what we... We understand the Levites because as Christians today, we talk a lot about cleansing and salvation and sanctification and repentance and and making sure your life is all cleaned up. But we've kind of forgotten about the military aspect of spiritual warfare. And we don't talk about the military language. We we talk about in a theological salvation, being a better person kind of way, but not in a military spiritual warfare kind of way. And that's the language that See, they would have seen it the other way. They would have got so caught up in the military, they, they, they begin to forget the whole spiritual part of it all. And we're just doing the opposite here. So this is what he commands them to do. So then, verse 11, Moses, the Yahweh spoke to Moses and said, Look, my, I myself have taken the Levites from among the Israelites instead of every firstborn who opens a womb among the Israelites. So the Levites belong to me, because all the firstborn are mine. When I destroyed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I set apart for myself all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast. They belong to me. I am Yahweh. So God also reminds them, do you all remember why the Levites are the only ones that get to be priests? God says. (laughs) Remember when I came into Egypt, what did God do to deliver Israel? He killed the firstborn of all Egyptians. The only firstborn that got to live were... The Israelites, but not just the Israelites, only the Israelites and only the Egyptians who did what? Put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Which means when they killed that lamb so the firstborn could live, in a way God bought their firstborn. He owns their firstborn now. Because they should have died, but the only thing that saved them was God's sacrificial lamb. So what he's saying is that all your firstborn now belong to me. Now, what did God mean by that? You're all going to serve as priests. So remember in Exodus 19, God says, you're going to be my special possession, a royal priesthood in a holy nation. He wanted the firstborn of every family to be his priest. That was God's ideal. Every other nation, only a certain family got to be priests. But God says, I want to give every family access to me. Every family will be allowed to come into the tabernacle because I bought you with the blood of my lamb. But when they got to the golden calf, what did everybody do? They worshipped it, except for Levi. And that's why Levi are the priests, because the firstborn of every family lost the right to be the priest of God and the only people who did not lose that right were the Levites, because they're the only ones who did not worship the golden calf. And so Israel was all supposed to have access to the tabernacle, but they lost that right through sin. So that's what God is doing. He's reminding them, just like you all lost the right to dwell with me in the tabernacle because of your sin, your obedience is necessary to dwell with me in the promised land that you're about you're 11 days away from and you all have lost access to me to a certain degree because your sin don't lose more and God is reminding them that's why the Levites are the priest because God doesn't play favorites you were all supposed to be priests but certain people lost the right because they didn't love God enough So now he's going to number the Levites. Now, we'll talk about why he's going to number them in a little bit, but first what he's going to do is talk about the different families of Levites. 
he starts off with the Gershonites. The Gershonites are in the West. And he commands the Gershonites, they're responsible for taking care of all the curtains and the veil and all the fabric. So the curtains that go over top of the tabernacle, they're in charge of that. And the gate and the, the courtyard fabric and the veil between the ta- holy place and the holy of holies, they're in charge of that. So they're in charge of all the curtains and all the drapes, all the bedspreads, all that kind of stuff. And so they're responsible for taking everything down, folding it all up. doesn't say anything about not touching the ground, but I'm sure it shouldn't. Um, and they're to maintain that. So when they pack up, they pack up all that. That's what that family is in charge of. The Kohites or Kohathites are next. And they're responsible for taking care of all the furniture and the utensils. So the table that the bread sits on top of, the lampstand, the Ark of the Covenant, all the, the furniture, they're responsible for carrying all that. So they're going to carry the Ark of the Covenant. They're going to carry the altar of incense. They're going to carry the table of showbread. They're going to carry the lampstand, the wash basin, and the altar. They're responsible for carrying all that. And then the Merites, they're responsible for all the beams, all the posts that hold the, te- the courtyard fence up and all the wood beams that hold the tabernacle up. So all the studs and the two-by-fours and all that kind of stuff. And so they're all responsible for carrying that. What's the point? That remember, this tabernacle was only 75 feet by 45 feet big. And if you've got four families tackling this thing, and they all know exactly what their job is, and they go for the curtains, they go for the two-by-fours, and they go for the articles, then this thing is going to collapse really fast. Have you ever seen military unpack things and pack it back up? When everybody knows what they're supposed to do, they all function together like a well-oiled machine. And that's the whole point, that everybody is doing their part, and nothing is not being done, and everything is being done efficiently and quickly. And this is the point that Paul is making. You have been gifted by God for a certain purpose. You need to do that to the best of your ability in recognition that other people don't have that job and you don't have their job and only then can the body of Christ function in a way that's really, truly efficient and unified. And they all have their role and they're all just as important. And then he tells you that the family of Aaron is responsible for the sacrifices. And so the glory of God will lift up and it will move out. And as it moves out, they'll just tackle the tabernacle and tear it down. And they're allowed to enter the Holy of Holies and tear it down now because the glory of God's not there anymore. And then they will pack it all up and then they'll file out east, south, Levites, west, north, and the march. Then the Shekinah glory of God will stop somewhere and it's telling them that's where they're supposed to set up camp. And the Levites will unpack everything really quickly and then they'll organize around the tabernacle once again. And that's how they keep moving. And that's how they're organized. A well-oiled machine, they all have their role in the body of God's military. So chapter 3, verse 40. Now we come back to that whole idea that the Levites are the priests because the other 12 tribes lost the right to be priests. So then he says this, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Number all the firstborn males of the Israelites from the month old and upward, and take the number of their names, and take the Levites for me. I am Yahweh. Instead of all the firstborn males among all the Israelites and their livestock, you're going to count the Levites. 
So Moses numbered all the firstborn males among the Israelites and Yahweh had, that Yahweh had commanded him, and all the firstborn males by the number of their names. From a month old and upward, they totaled 22,273. So what's the point of this? One, they have to know all the Levites are involved. But the other point is this. Every single firstborn male of every family was supposed to be priests. Which means when they all lost that right to be firstborn priests, God also lost a whole bunch of priests. So now he's going to take the firstborn of all the Levites. So they count up all the firstborn males of all the tribes, and they count up all the firstborn Levites, and they discover that the Levites are 273 men short. So God has 273 fewer priests because of their sin than he would have had before. Because remember, they're all supposed to serve, but now he only has Levi. So God needs 273 more people. Because remember, the reason he doesn't have these 273 is because of their sin. Their sin. So this is what God says. All the 273 people that are extra, the males from the other tribes, they owe God. Because the Levites have replaced all the males except for these 273. So God says, there is no replacement for you, but you're not allowed to serve me, so you have to be redeemed somehow. The Levites have redeemed all the other males, but there's no Levites to redeem you. So God is going to require five shekels from each of these 273 people, and they're to be given to the tabernacle. A one shekel is about a month's wage. So each one of them owe five months of your payments, almost half of your salary, your yearly salary. That's huge. There's no way I could survive if I had to pay half of my salary. Well, I could if I was trusting in God, but I mean on a practical, without God kind of a level. But that's, the, but that's my point too. That means there's a huge trust in God here. If you're going to pay half of your year's salary. Oh, and by the way, you have no job because you're wandering around in the wilderness. Okay? So you're unemployed. You owe God half of what you would have made that year. And you've got to trust him that he'll take care of you. And all, by the way, the reason you owe him this is because you worship the golden calf. Your sin. Well, how do they decide what to accept? That's a good question. I've always wondered that. Like, that's when it's really good to be first in line. <laughs> Not the last 273 in line. So I don't know. I have no idea how they do that. I, but the point is they all owe that. So five shekels multiplied by 273, that's the tabernacle's got a heavy, hefty donation. Now, once again, this is how to make up for the work that's not going to happen because they're 273 men short. And this is what's called a redemption price. From this point on, after this generation, every Israelite male, when they're born, their family is required to pay five shekels and sacrifice an animal to the tabernacle. Because what they're supposed to do is they're supposed to take their son to the tabernacle and give it to God as a priest. But because God won't accept your son as a priest because your son is a descendant of somebody who worshiped the golden calf, you have to then buy your son back. And you pay the tabernacle five shekels. And you redeem your son back. And every, you know how powerful that would be? Every time you have a son... You have to go to the tabernacle, present him to God, and then buy him back. And in the back of your mind, you're remembering it's because we sin. We sin against God. We sin against God. You're paying the redemption price. 
Now, what's powerful is that we're told in the Gospels that when Mary and Joseph gave birth to Jesus, they went to the tabernacle and they did everything that God commanded them to do. They, 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 they did the sacrifices, they did the circumcision, they did everything according to Leviticus, all these things that you're supposed to do with a newborn baby and son. But the one thing the Gospels never mention is they never paid the redemption price for Jesus. He's not a Levite. He has no right to be a priest. But they never redeemed him back. Therefore, in a way, he technically got to serve as a priest. So then later, the Gospels and the Epistles developed the theology that he had no sin. Therefore, there was no sin in his life that disqualified him from being a priest. Therefore, he didn't have to pay the redemption price. I really would like to be in that argument with that priest in the tabernacle when they show up that day. He's sinless. (laughs) Um, Then they didn't know that. But here's what's cool. Hebrews goes on and makes the point that Christ is our what? High priest. Now, it's doing an interesting thing because technically, according to the law, he's not allowed to be a high priest because of the sin of his family and because he's not a Levite. And so Hebrews is making the point that he is our high priest, though, because then Hebrews is going to make the point that he has no sin. But it probably assumes that you paid attention to the Gospels and realized that he didn't even pay the redemption price. And then that's why Hebrews goes on and says, therefore, he's a priest of a different law, because according to the law, he's disqualified. Therefore, in order for him to be a priest, he has to be a priest of a new law, and that's why we're not under the law anymore. And so Hebrews is making the argument Christ has every right to be a priest. Now, if Christ paid the redemption price, then he would have put himself under that law and disqualified himself being a priest. He wouldn't be able. This, this is how God is working everything out. But you wouldn't know that if you didn't read Numbers, that boring, dry book. Okay? And so you, this is, this is the, see how this stuff speaks into the Second Testament so much all the time. 